Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John starting out today. So if you guys want to turn there. So just a brief word of introduction. We've been doing, well, this is really just our second session on the basics. So if you are discipling someone or you yourself are interested in learning things about the Christian faith, the purpose of this time is to just cover some basic things that we think would be helpful for everyone to kind of get clear on as they're discipling people, reading the word for themselves. And so the first session last week, we talked about what's called covenant theology, which is basically the backbone of scripture. How do we think it's organized? This week, uh, we're going to be branching off of covenant theology and some of the things we talked about there into the doctrine of soteriology. Now, I'm using big terms, uh, but that's okay because you are all high school and most of you are college graduates and those of you who aren't are about to be soon. Uh, and so covenant theology and soteriology, these things are terms we need to become familiar with as believers. Uh, biology, famously, is the study of life, right? You can break those things down. Soteriology is the study of salvation. So ology, the study of, and soter, which is from a Greek word which talks about the doctrine of rescuing or saving. So soteriology talks about how is it that human beings are saved? By what means? How does it work? And admittedly within this doctrine, there are tons of things that we could talk about. We could probably spend whole semesters of uh, class talking about these doctrines in particular, but we only have 20, some odd minutes here. And so we're not gonna spend a huge deep dive into this topic, but just kind of get a basic overlay that any Christian could benefit from. So last week, just a quick recap for those of you who uh, weren't here or just a quick call back to that. Last week we talked about what's called the covenant of works between God and Adam, wherein God puts Adam in the garden. He gives him a charge to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, to subdue and have dominion over it. And he says, don't eat of any tree, or you can eat of any tree except for that one tree. Adam falls short, he breaks the covenant. And as a result of that, sin enters the world and death through sin, which is what Paul says in Romans 5 regarding those events. And that's hearkening back to Genesis 1, 2, 1, 2, and 3. The first three chapters of the Bible tell us about the fall. They tell us that it happened. And then the rest of the Bible tells us about how God then saves people in light of their fallen condition. The fallen condition of humanity is one of the things that we need to understand and wrestle with uh, because it is one of the principal things that determines how we understand God's saving of his people. For instance, uh, I know I've had you guys in the Gospel of John, uh, just going to call back quickly to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where God looks over the whole face of the world and it says that as God considers all of humanity, he, he sees this. He says that the intention of the human heart was only ever evil continuously. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And that's not a commentary only of people in that day. Uh, that's a commentary of people who live in a post-fall world. So that would be all of us. It's not right, and I don't think it's an honest assessment of the world, to look at humanity as we know it and conclude people are generally good or mostly good, and they just have some uh, domestication to, to be dealt to them. It's not as though we are uh, benevolent people towards each other and we simply have some rough edges to, to knock off. The general consensus, if you take an honest look at humanity and, honest, and an honest look at human history, is people are, uh, well, the biblical term would be depraved. Uh, people are fallen. 
Uh, that does not mean that every single person is as wicked as they could possibly be. Uh, that simply comments on the fact that people are wicked, not neutral. Uh, wicked are, people are wicked. They're not uh, in a neutral place, either before one another or before God. So that's Scripture's commentary, and Scripture makes that case plainly. It speaks about Noah in terms of his sinfulness. In fact, Scripture, in every character it introduces us to, will speak about them and their shortcomings. All except for one character, Christ, will be contrasted as the Savior and Redeemer of this fallen human race. This is why we can't save ourselves by obedience. We are bent towards our own sin. We are bent towards sin in general. Sin is not just something out in the world. It's something that's actually inside of us. And that's because Adam is our representative head. His curse of sin kind of comes down to all of humanity. So everyone agrees, though. I've, I've just kind of given you the biblical case that humans are fallen. But everyone also agrees that humans make willful choices that do matter, and they do affect the outcome of things. So humans make willful choices like uh, what career you're going to do or who are you friends with, right? Even if you know uh, a parent or a grandparent who might advise you to hang out with certain people or not hang out with certain people, right? They do that because they know that you can make a willful choice that will impact your future or your outcome. Uh, and you know this as well. You will wake up in the morning and you make willful choices about what you are to eat or are you to go to work or not? Are you going to be on time or not? Are you going to shower or not? You make willful choices. Those choices are real. They affect things. And everyone agrees that that is a thing. Uh, unless, unless you're a real fatalist, in which case you think nothing matters and you're just a puppet. That's not a Christian view, though. Everyone does make meaningful choices. Uh, and scripture thinks that people make meaningful choices. Uh, consider all of the exhortations to Israel to fear the Lord and obey him. Scripture offers that as a real choice that people can make, to fear the Lord and to obey him. Or even in the New Testament, where Jesus is going around the world preaching the gospel, uh, and he says, repent, uh, turn away from your sins. And this is, this is the message of the disciples. So the, the New Testament thinks that people make willful choices that affect their outcome. However, uh, there's another doctrine that kind of comes into the picture at, at this time, uh, which is uh, the doctrine of God's predestination or God's foreknowledge. And this often is contrasted with humans' willful decisions, but the Bible doesn't contrast them. Uh, the Bible will say, for example, in Romans chapter 8 or Ephesians chapter 1, that God predestines and foreknows people and their outcomes. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, before the foundations of the world, God foreknew and predestined people. Or uh, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, our confidence that we will be saved is because he foreknew us. Uh, that is our confidence that we will actually be glorified in the end. So everyone who's biblical has to wrestle with the fact that the Bible puts real choices in front of us, and the Bible also says God foreknows things. Now the question is, how can both of those things be true? And that's what we're going to dive in a little bit to right now. And that's why I had you turn to the Gospel of John, because when we think about the most important choice that a human can make, right, a, a willful decision, it's who do you serve as Lord? Do you accept Christ or not accept Christ? And in John chapter 3, particularly in verse 16, uh, there's a famous text about evangelism. And this is a text that everyone knows, but I want you to look at it again. Uh, because it is a true text, it is a good text, and it will be a helpful launch point for this discussion. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, I'm reading out of the ESV. If you have something else in front of you, it might be a little different, differently worded. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, but to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So I'm going to pause there. We're going to look back at that text and some of the surrounding context in a few moments, but just a couple of observations about the doctrine of salvation just from these verses. Salvation is by Christ alone. That's a fundamental observation that we can make from Scripture. There is no salvation in any other name. There is no other name under heaven in which man can be saved. Or as John says it here, For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to the world, that whoever believes in his name would be saved. There is no position, no Christian position, that can say there is salvation outside of or apart from Christ. That's something you might hear in the world around you, that there is salvation apart from Christ. The Bible does not teach that. That is antithetical to Scripture. Category two or observation two that we can see here. There are those who will reject Christ. So not only does he talk about those who will believe in him and have everlasting life, but he holds out a warning for those who will not believe. Uh, He says, for example, uh, he gave his only son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is already condemned or is condemned already. So there are two groups of people in this text, those who believe and those who don't. And the Bible speaks about both groups, willful rejection of Christ and those who willfully accept him. So we, there's, a, there's no room in Scripture's testimony to say that everyone accepts Christ or everyone is saved by Christ. There are those who will reject him and those are real consequences which are to be had. The third observation is from verse 19, which is that the rejection is an outflow of the nature of those people. Verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So the the rejection of the light, in, in this case, John has defined the light in chapter one as Christ. He is the light coming into the world. The people who reject the light reject the light on the grounds that they are not making a rational choice, but they are making a hateful choice. They don't love the light, therefore they reject the light. So salvation is in Christ alone. Some will reject it. And the rejection is an outflow of the nature of the people who are making the choice. And now here's the question. Well, how does John think that people can make real volitional choices if he's also just said that it kind of flows out of who their nature is. Well, John chapter one in his introduction to the gospel, if you want to turn there, John chapter one verse, I'll be reading from verse nine, but really just that whole section through verse 13. He tells us as he's writing his gospel, here's the condition of man, here's God's saving work, here's how men are saved. This is the theological commentary on how salvation works. Verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that would be the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So those who are children of God are those who receive Christ. 
And here's the question. Well, how does one receive Christ or become a child of God? Verse 13. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you asked the Apostle John, John, how is it that people are saved? Is it by their bloodline, their heritage? Is it by the will of their sinful flesh? Is it by the will of, let's say, their more rational faculties? No, no, no. But rather, it is those who are born of God. Now this is a difficult teaching in Scripture, but it is a true teaching in Scripture, which is that God births people or renews people or enlivens people to himself, and that is the same group of people that turn to him and accept him. So John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him will be saved, and John chapter 1 says, those who are going to turn and believe in him are those who have been born of him. There's other texts in, in John's gospel that teach this, the triune nature of God, for the Father to elect those who are to be redeemed, the Son to go and get those who the Father has elected, and the Spirit to regenerate those to be sensitive and responsive to the willings of the Son and, and his gospel message. You can consider, for example, John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he says, Father, I have gone into the world to get those from the world who you set aside for me, and I have lost none of those whom you have given me. Jesus speaking about his own ministry, for example, in John chapter 10. I know we're in the Gospel of John a lot. I didn't want to be bouncing all over Scripture. But in John chapter 10, I think it's a, a good place to look for this. Jesus speaking of himself as the good shepherd. He speaks about how he relates to his sheep. Uh, you can hear his disciples, his people. The sheep, this is uh, from verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So Jesus has sheep, and what marks the sheep is that they hear his voice. It is not as though there's an indiscriminate group of people out in the world that hear his voice, and if they respond, they become his sheep. He says, the people who respond to my voice are my sheep. They're kind of set aside already. Now, I know that to be true because, for example, if you go to verse uh, 14 of that same text, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And, verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. Here he speaks of people who have not yet accepted him, have not yet responded to his voice as his sheep. So in, in his own thinking of these things, there are people who have yet to respond to him that he already calls his sheep because he knows that what marks the people who respond to him is the fact that they're his sheep. What marks their response, they, they don't become sheep after they respond. They are sheep and thus they will respond. That's how John speaks of these things. So this is the triune God working out salvation. And this is good news for us because if you consider the light of human fallenness, uh, humans making choices in line with their own nature, and the, and the fact that in Adam we are all fallen creatures, and the fact that Genesis 6 tells us we only from the heart think evil thoughts continuously. Now here's the question. How is it that God can save people who are not neutral towards him? How is it that God can come into the world to teach them about salvation and offer them grace if he knows that they will reject whatever they put, he puts in front of them? Scripture's answer is God will actually see to it that he first enlivens them to himself, and thus they will respond. 
If, if Christ came neutrally to the world without wanting to violate humans' nature or will, uh, then, then no one would ever be saved. But because all are fallen, all are in this state of depravity. So for Christians, this is, this is wonderful news because God has determined not to just offer salvation to people, but to actually make sure that people are saved, which is a totally different game. It's a totally different thing. And now, uh, this is also good news because uh, this actually jives with how we understand human freedom, uh, for example, in eternity, in heaven. If you consider human freedom to uh, necessarily need two choices always, uh, that you're not truly free unless you can choose to do good or evil at all times, well then, uh, do humans lose freedom when they get to eternity? Because in heaven, we long for and we hope for and we pray for our sinful desires and all our thoughts that are against God to be removed from us. And for us, we long for a state where we will no longer even want to sin. We long for a state where we won't, we won't sin, not because we are put before sin and we choose not to do it, but where we don't actually even have any inclination in our heart to sin. Uh, heaven will be a perfect place. This is, this is what we're longing for. And I contend heaven will also be a free place. It won't just be a bunch of robot humans who are up there who have had their wills taken away, but that the human will is truly free only as it accords with its own nature. Uh, we know this as well. You, when you make decisions as you go about your day, you don't make those choices in a vacuum. How hungry you are and what you are craving will determine what you order on the menu from certain restaurants. You don't make that as an objective choice where you look at all your options neutrally and choose objectively. You're, in some sense, a victim of your own nature. If you have cravings for certain things, you make choices in line with those desires. Uh, this is how cosmic freedom works as well. If you are a sinner against God, no matter if God puts salvation in front of you, you won't be saved by that offer. He has to first change your nature, and thus you can respond appropriately. This is, this is good because in heaven, uh, this will be the reality, that our, our sinful hearts have been removed from us, and God is the one who, who does that thing. This is good news even for the doctrine of sanctification, you growing in holiness, because Christians right now, uh, post-conversion, uh, we can choose to sin or choose not to sin. We are given choices to sin, and Paul says you can actually overcome that. You can resist that temptation by the power of the Spirit who is within you. Uh, but that, that is not our hope. Our hope is actually that our temptations to sin would be fully removed. And so we pray for that. We actually, uh, if you've ever prayed a prayer like, Lord, I pray that you would take away that temptation from me. Uh, you're asking God to do something that could really violate your freedom. He could take away your desire to do something that you otherwise naturally want to do. But nevertheless, you pray for that because you know, well, he knows better than I do. And I want to no longer even desire that kind of thing. I want him in some sense to limit my freedom. I want him to limit my nature. If you've ever thought about uh, praying for someone who you know is lost in the world, and you ask the Lord, hey, Lord, open their eyes so they can see your truth. You're asking God to violate their nature in some sense, to take their sinful, darkened nature and turn it on. Now, you're not asking God to represent himself to them because likely you've presented God to them already. Now, you're asking God to do something that is outside of your control. And I would say that's a good thing to pray for because it's not a limitation on human freedom for God to actually awaken people and give them new natures. And lastly, I think this is practically relevant because when it, as it regards to evangelism and the sharing of the gospel to people, uh, we don't need to be perfect articulate, uh, perfectly articulate when it comes to preaching the gospel. We don't need to be 100% accurate. 
We don't have to have PhDs in apologetics so that we can go to the world and present all of the rational reasons why God is right or why God is better. Uh, because the gospel is the power to save, not human intuition or ingenuity. Which is good news for all of you because unless you're planning on getting a PhD in some niche field and you think that's the only hope that I have of convincing a lost world to come to Christ, well then you've got to go put 10 years and a lot of your own money up to that before you can go do evangelism. What we see in the New Testament is very different. You have a bunch of fishermen who say, repent and believe, and somehow Jews who hated Jesus before the resurrection believe in him now. That's a, a radical thing. John's commentary on that, by the way, is it's born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, born of the will of God. God's will is what births humans and enlivens them. And now here's one more practical note on this. Okay, let's say you are... On board for all this, you say, okay, I think this is the evident teaching of scripture. Does that mean I have to figure out if someone is elect or not before I can go evangelize to them? No. God knows things that we do not know. And he chose to tell us that this is a thing, but also not to tell us who it applies to. How do you discern who's elect and who's not elect? You preach the gospel indiscriminately. You offer salvation indiscriminately. You pray prayers for people's souls indiscriminately. You, you speak to everyone. You exhort them to truth, exhort them to holiness. And, as, and first Peter helps us with this. Uh, confirm your calling and election by persevering to the end. Well, we don't know who's elect. God knows who's elect. We live in this world preaching to all people, exhorting them to persevere, to repent, to believe, uh, because that's our charge. Our charge is not to figure out how saved someone is or isn't by God. We do not have access to that knowledge. God does. He's all wise, but we do not. So in some sense, we live in this world doing what God told us and not questioning about the mechanics of how it all works. Now, we, we do this with lots of doctrines, by the way. Uh, for example, you can consider the doctrine of the Trinity, where we say God, there's one God, there's three persons. Uh, if I press any deeper into that logically, I'm going to end up in some heresies pretty quickly. So it is with, with this doctrine. Uh, there is a God who elects people to salvation. He calls us to call all people to salvation. If I press into that any deeper, I'm either going to have to strip God of his sovereignty or strip humanity of its freedom. So I just stay right in bounds of what scripture has told me. Now, these are mysteries that we walk in, but they're mysteries that scripture calls us to embrace in faith. So, this is, uh, let's just say, a, a big picture overview of this doctrine. Uh, there's so much more, admittedly, uh, almost hundreds of hours more of material we could cover on this topic. Um, but I suppose I'll try to open up our discussion after this so that we can catch as much as we, uh, or as much as you're curious about. Uh, but let me just close quickly in a word of prayer, and then we can go into that. Lord, thank you for your word in all that it teaches, Lord for revealing truth to us, for telling us how we ought to live in light of that truth. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith to believe, hearts that are surrendered to you, to be obedient to you. And Lord, we trust that you are good and wise and a loving God. And we, we pray especially when uh, Scripture's truth challenges us and causes us to question your goodness. Uh, we pray that you would, by your grace, overcome our own hearts and show us just how good and lovely and gracious you are. We pray this all in your name. Amen.